If you have a, a Bible with you this evening, I wonder, could I invite you to read with me the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read from verses 29 to 30 together. <clears throat> and um, sometimes when you communicate, sometimes you have this tendency to, uh, I do anyway, find a title before you have a subject. That can be a little bit dangerous. You know, I never wanted to be a preacher. I still have some hesitations around it. And when I'm finished, you'll have them too. In fact, it's quite remarkable how I ended up doing this. I only came out for a loaf of bread. That's true. One Thursday evening, I was in a slightly backslidden state. I'd become very disenchanted with the church. The church seemed to care more about the length of my hair than they did the condition of my heart. And um, I did the most unpardonable sin. I had my ear re-pierced again. And you know that that's, that, you know that deserves all kinds of stonings. And so I came back to the church. I was singing um, in various places. came back to the church and somebody really just accused me of going back to what they considered to be my old lifestyle. And I left the church. I had a little kind of huff with God for about three months. Has anybody ever had a huff with God? <laughs> Did it last longer than three months? Come on, be honest. It does sometimes. Sometimes it can last years. Um, and <clears throat> I'd heard that a friend of mine was coming to speak at our little church in Birmingham, and she had been on the mission field in the Philippines, and she had just seen God do some exceptional things. I'd kept in contact with her, and I thought, well, I'll pop in. My mother had sent me out to get some, what we call in Ireland, messages. Messages are not things that come on your phone. In Ireland, they're actually, it's shopping. Okay, so she'd go out and get some messages, and I went out to get some messages, some shopping, and uh, I was going out for a loaf of bread, and I ended up smack bang in the middle of, of a night where this young lady was telling story after story about how God had impacted her life. And, and one of the stories she told was that she had been brought to the little complex where they lived on as missionaries, this tiny little baby, it was just a few hours old, and it had stopped breathing. And as they began to pray and declare the goodness of God over this child, it took about, I think, maybe five minutes or so, the child came back to life. And, um, and I was just so overwhelmed by this, I began to cry. In fact, I began to cry and I couldn't stop crying for about three days. And I wasn't crying because I was upset with anything. I was crying because I felt that I had just discovered a part of God's nature that I hadn't seen before. The spectacular aspect of his nature that in our very ordinary lives turns up in an extraordinary way and does something exceptional for us in our physicality. And that just began a whole adventure with me. So out of that came this sense of calling into the ministry. And uh, I was hoping I'd be an itinerant evangelist. I used to do that anyway and go out and do stuff. But actually, God brought me to uh, Bible college and I ended up doing that for a few years. And gosh, that was difficult. Bible co college students went to bed at 10 o'clock RT. Can you believe that? I was just getting ready for the clubs at 10 o'clock. And as I used to kind of sit in the lounge by myself, imagining, I remember one night I went out for some chips and I came back at 11 o'clock. I thought the rapture had taken place. The place was, there wasn't a soul to be found. All the good Christian Bible college students would be in bed by 10, 10.30, and I would stay up till 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. And there began the journey with God of realizing that God had a call on my life, and that call was to communicate the truth of Jesus Christ and to demonstrate the love of God in just about every facet of my life. And uh, that call has caused me to end up here, which is quite remarkable, a story. 
So I apologize in advance if I'm not what you expected, but tonight I'm all that you've got. (laughs) So let's read this together. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 to 30. These are the words of Jesus. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what we're thinking about tonight is the cost of discipleship. What does it look like for us as people to be yoked in Christ and to live the life that he's called us to with all its beauty and all its glory and all its power and all its capacity here on this earth. And for me, discipleship somehow has become something of a program in the church when actually I believe God's intentionality was always that it would be more about relating to God and with God in a way that brought internal and therefore eventually external evidences that God was who he says he was. And Jesus picks up that thought and he picks it up because for us tonight the cost of non-discipleship is actually far more expensive than the cost of discipleship. Can you imagine what it would look like for us not to be walking with Jesus? not to allow him to lead and guide our hearts and lives. Where would many of us be if we hadn't come into relationship with God? I know for me, I certainly wouldn't have been in a place like this, and I certainly wouldn't have been hanging out with nice people like you. In fact, the truth is, I probably would have killed myself by the kind of life that I was leading at that time. So the cost of non-discipleship to an individual is absolutely far more expensive than the cost of discipleship. And what about this thought? The cost of non-discipleship in a city is far more expensive to the eternal outcome of that city than the cost of individual and collective discipleship experiences that we're having here on the earth. And yet, most of the time, we grapple with the idea of the cost of following Jesus. Many of us are thinking about what it costs us to give our lives to him and to continue to give him the right to direct and to lead our steps. And the cost of following Jesus somehow has caused us to forget the incredible expense that it would be to you and to me and to all of us here and even outside of here of not actually being a disciple of Jesus. But my question to you tonight is one that I'd like us to think about together. The first question I have for you tonight is this. Do you think it's possible for us to take God's yoke upon our lives and for that yoke to cause us to find rest for our souls. If Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light, you certainly wouldn't imagine that when you looked around in a building like this. Most people think of and sense discipleship as something that's quite actually difficult to access and to maintain. And I have a bit of a problem with that Because if I believe that what Jesus is telling me is true, that his burden is easy and his yoke is light, then why are so many of us very downtrodden and very wearied by the process? For me, there are some questions around that that I am seeking God's heart and I hope he will answer. But the question I want to ask you tonight is important. Do you think, do I think that it's possible to have the kind of discipleship relationship with Christ where we live in the reality of his burden being easy and his yoke becoming light? And I have something to say about that, and it's simply this. I never believe that God invites us to something that he doesn't help us with. 
I think it's important to understand that in human effort alone, this is probably not attainable. But actually, we have a problem. Maybe our faith levels are a little bit low concerning it because maybe we have found the spiritual journey we've been on slightly complicated or difficult or sacrificial. And maybe we have maybe just thought that this would be something that would happen at some point, maybe when we get to heaven. But actually, we really need to draw that question a little bit closer to home. If I'm not living in the yoke of God, in the yoke of Christ, which is easy and light, then somehow my thinking around discipleship and my thinking around relationship with him needs some upgrading. So how can we live with the easy yoke of Christ in our lives? Well, the first thing I want to suggest to you is it's not something that can just turn up in a moment you know, in show business, when I used to work in show business, some of my friends, and, and you would know some of them, almost in an overnight capacity, would become international stars. And we used to have this little saying, and those of you who are involved in the world of show business will know this saying, it takes 40 years to become an overnight sensation. And that's absolutely true, because behind the scenes, there's a journey and a consistent discipline in someone's life that brings them to the place where their expertise starts to become apparent to some people around them. And the same is true in our spiritual journey. Sometimes we want to display the fullness of God in various moments in our lives. We want God to turn up in a hot spot or in a moment. And actually the truth is we probably will never see God move like that in our lives if we haven't learned the secret of day-by-day living and discipline in relationship to God. Now, how many of us play sport in this room? Some of you don't know the answer to that question. You're still making your mind up on it, but apparently I've never played sport. I'm lousy at sport. I was never picked for anything in sport. But actually, I know that you can't just turn up on the pitch and expect to score like Beckham. That not only is it ridiculous to imagine that you could, and I know when you're young and naive, you probably think you do. You know, I have some friends and they scored a goal in 1978 and they're still talking about it. It's a bit like the World Cup that England won. Sorry, did I say that out loud? We're still talking about it. But actually, some of these people that have, you know, achieved incredible moments and glorious, you know, evidences of their talent have had a lifestyle and lived a particular way behind that story that actually has paid a huge amount of emphasis and impact on their capacity to score the goal or to reach the acclaim that they have reached. In fact, I understand with sports people, it isn't just even about the skill on the pitch. It's actually about diet. It's about sleep. It's about rest. It's about priorities. And it's about a variety of other things. And actually, I want to suggest to you tonight that for us to take upon the yoke of Christ, it's not a one moment for once in a lifetime experience. It's a consistent and persistent discipline of thinking and attitude and posture of heart and indeed work that actually will bring us to the place where the yoke of Christ becomes very visible in moments where God turns up in spectacular ways. A friend of mine runs a church or ran a church in Northern Ireland. He um, started with about 15 people. Well, actually started with a smaller group of people. It was just him and his mother-in-law and his wife. And, um, you know, they just believed that God sent them over to Northern Ireland. They were pastoring in Glasgow to start a vineyard church. And 
Many, many years later, that church has grown to over 3,000 people. Uh, my friend Alan is invited all over the world to speak, and he's just written his first book called Scattered Servants, just a phenomenal story of what God did in Northern Ireland. And in one year, they saw over 2,500 people come to faith on the streets in a tiny little town called Coleraine, just on the west coast of Northern Ireland. Nobody goes to Coleraine. In fact, everyone's trying to get out of it. But God sent them there and they started the journey. And of course, all these people come from all over the world. They want to find out how this move of God has happened. And when you actually bow down and begin to think about the story, you recognize some of those truths. That what looks like a massive move of the Spirit actually began 15 years ago, whenever Alan decided that every single Saturday he would go out onto the streets of his little town, he'd put a chair in the middle of the, the, the marketplace, and he'd invite people to come for healing and for prayer. And you'll have heard of a gentleman called Mark Marks, and he actually has a ministry called Healing in the Streets. He was probably, I think, about the 10th or 11th person to join this church, and he had a belief that God would use him in signs and wonders. Well, you know, out of that tiny little chair and a tiny little town center, God began to do something wonderful, but it didn't happen overnight. It's taken 15 years every Saturday in the rain. And if you've ever been to Northern Ireland, you know it can rain. Every Saturday, wind, hail, snow, whatever the weather was like, they predetermined in their hearts at the beginning of the journey that they would not allow the conditions they were in to stop them from bringing life to their town. And now that church is over three and a half thousand people. And people come from all over the world to find out what God did overnight. <laughs> you know, we took a, a group of people from Glasgow over to work with them in the early days, and here's what they used to spend their Saturdays doing. I, I found it quite interesting. They would take some toilet brushes and some cleaner, and they would go to all the shops in their high street, and they would offer to clean their toilets for free. And we all had our marigolds on. You can imagine I took a bunch of teenagers over to do some evangelism. I don't think they expected they'd get marigolds on a toilet brush. I think they thought they'd be prophesying with people on the streets. But actually, all that time, 15 years of their lives, they kept on doing what they knew was the right thing to do in God. And a move of the Spirit didn't happen overnight. It took them 15 years to become an overnight sensation. And now people are gathering from all over the world to hear what they have to say. And he stands on a variety of platforms that he, in his own words, says he never thought he'd ever end up in a place like that. What is my point? My point is this, that if we are seeking truly to take on the yoke of Christ, we must stop wanting God to turn up in spectacular ways if we haven't in private experiences with him given him the opportunity to affect and indeed condition our hearts and our souls. I think sometimes the church is guilty of trying to provoke God to do something. And actually the reality for me is often those things, that culture of his presence, that wonderful sense of his abiding with us, that happens in a private context and actually it begins to leak out in a public manner. And we become acclimatized and accustomed to the sense of his presence, carriers of the love that he carries for humanity and for us personally. And as we allow him in the ordinary of our lives, just to have his way and have dominion over all things concerning us, we are being 
the kind of people that are carrying the sense of God that is necessary for us to change our world. Alan, this guy, said to me once at a huge conference, thousands of people, he said, I keep asking God, do I have to do this? And he's standing just there on the corner of the platform. And this is what he said to me. He said, I liked it better when it was just me and Jesus in the bedroom with the guitar. Now, for me, I think God is going to use someone like that. Because sometimes this environment can be very seductive. You know, there's, there's something about having a crowd listen to the things that you say that actually can fool you into thinking that you're better than you are. But a man who would rather be in the presence of God in private is probably going to be the kind of man that's been marinated by that presence. So when he stands in a place that's public, something begins to happen in the atmosphere. Hearts begin to change and lives begin to be transformed. Just like the athlete that spends all his time eating correctly and training correctly and working on the weaknesses in his capacity to score the goals or reach the, the acclaims that he wants, so must we be the kind of people who are working with the Spirit on a day-by-day -day basis, allowing him to facilitate in us and through us the kind of life that he can use in glorious ways. And I believe that Jesus demonstrates that to us. I believe we have a tendency in the Western world to look at the miracles and not see the way the man lived privately. We have an orientation to the spectacular and we seem to ignore the ordinary parts of Jesus' life. Do you know, for the vast majority of his life, he wasn't known by people. He lived a very ordinary life and he would have had very ordinary experiences. But in those ordinary times, God began to fashion something extraordinary in him. You see, if we have faith in Christ, we must also believe that he knew how to live, not just how to minister, not just how to affect people for good, but how to live. So what did Jesus do privately that caused God to show up in and through his life publicly? Well, I want to highlight a couple of things that I think may be important for us to think about. The first thing I recognize that Jesus practiced was solitude. Have you ever practiced solitude? You know, I think sometimes in the Pentecostal church, we think more is more. And some of the greatest people that we admire that have written some of the most exceptional things about God have been people who have had times and seasons of solitude where they were left in a place of aloneness with God that really deepened and strengthened their character and their understanding of the nature and the person of God. And yet, I've never been to a conference or stood in a gathering like this where somebody suggested to me that solitude might be a good thing to practice. Particularly in our crazy world, where if we're not connected with a million people on Facebook, we think the world has rejected us. Do you know, I have people who are my friends on Facebook. I don't know why. I think it was a moment of weakness. I said yes to everybody. And some interesting people think that I'm their best friend. They send me messages at 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 in the morning. And because I'm so technically challenged, I don't know how to get rid of them off Facebook. If you happen to be one of them, I do apologize in advance. But, but you know, I really don't care what you're eating at 3 in the morning. Just so we're clear, I don't have a great desire to know what you're having for breakfast. And really, your pictures of, you know, your day out trip to Blackpool is probably not going to make my life 
any better than it currently is. But we're obsessed with connecting, obsessed with multiple connections. You know, in, in our house, I sit in front of a thing called the television. Has anybody got one of those? And just in case we missed it in the room, we've enlarged it about 10 times over the years. It's like a little mini cinema. So that's going in the background. But I also have a, a, a computer. So I'm watching this and I'm talking to somebody on this. And just in case I should miss a single thing, just a single thing of connecting with everybody else who really doesn't know me, <laughs> and really, if they're honest, probably would be better off not knowing me, actually, I've got this going as well. So we're Twittering and hashtagging and texting and emailing and watching. And if we're not careful, and I think we're not careful about such matters, we are refusing to allow there to be moments and seasons in our lives where solitude is to our greatest advantage. To be alone with your own thoughts seems like an alien concept these days, particularly in a world where everybody's telling you what you need to think and how you should think. To be left alone with your own thoughts, you know, and even to practice solitude as a discipline in our lives might actually be a very helpful way for us to begin to experience an increasing measure of the yoke of Christ in our hearts and in our souls. The second thing that Jesus seemed to do was he practiced silence. I don't know if this seems like an alien concept to you. For some of us, we think talking is cathartic, so we just keep talking. And you know, I'm Irish, so I can talk. And I must tell you, I didn't kiss the Blarney Stone. I think I swallowed it whole, if I'm honest. If there's a gap in a conversation, I don't know if you're like me, I get so embarrassed by some silences. I just talk and talk and talk and talk. And I find myself listening to the things I'm saying, and I think it's utter tripe. And I'm not even sure why I'm saying it, but I'm saying it. I remember over the years, we've had some prophetic people come to, to various churches that we've been in. And prophetic people generally are not chit-chatty about things. I, I think there's a mystery they want to pretend exist around their life. And so they tend to be very slightly distant and, and almost kind of with spiritual ADHD issues. You know what I'm saying? Slightly off center. And, and we had one such a man come to us in Glasgow and I so wanted him to come and I really believed that God would speak to us and God did all of that. But you know, he just didn't talk. And, and so you have these moments off, off the platform where you're sitting with these people for prolonged periods of time. And I, I, I must confess to you, after about 10 minutes, I caved in. 10 minutes of silence. You know, we got past the initial, thank you so much for being with us. And he just went, okay, um, was, your, was your travel long? <laughs> just. And after about four or five interactions like this, I started doing what I do. So tell me about your family and where did you get brought up? And, and the man was looking at me and it was like one of those things, you know when you see in the film where somebody just gets further and further and further and further away from you? I could feel that his, his desire was to leave the room, but he was too polite to do so. What is so wrong with silence? What is so wrong with there not being a myriad of voices saying all manner of things to us. And it seems to me when I look at the way Jesus lived his life, he was comfortable in solitude and he was at ease with silence. 
even when he was being accused for all manner of things that he didn't do, he chose not to speak. There must be an incredible power in choosing not to speak. Can somebody say amen to that? And you know, the truth is, when you are familiar with somebody, sometimes words are a little redundant. You know, I find now with Jane, after 25 years of marriage this November, sometimes we don't need a lot of chit-chat. We don't need a lot of conversation. Well, no, let me be clear. I don't need a lot of chit-chat. I don't need a lot of conversation. Sometimes if Jane's been on her own for a long period of time, she wants to tell me every single thing that's happened to her in the course of the day. And I do say to her, the headlines alone will be sufficient. But actually, we go through all of the subtext, and I thought, and they felt, and and it's good for her, and I'm getting used to it being good for me. But there are moments, and they're beautiful, where words are unimportant. The fact that we're together and the fact that we have a knowledge of each other and a sense of each other actually is by far the most valuable thing. And in some moments like that, it would seem intrusive for one of us to speak. But Jesus practiced solitude. And to be a disciple, to be somebody who is yoked with Christ in the journey, what seems to work for him might actually work for us. Maybe solitude could be good for some of us. Maybe silence would be an invitation to allow God to speak with his still small voice into the core of your reality. Another thing that Jesus did was pray. And I know that we've kind of left prayer to one side these days. It seems to be something that somebody else is responsible for. But actually, everything about what we have with God is about us interacting with him and communing with him and allowing him to speak to us and we talking to him and sharing with him and Jesus died to give us a relationship with God and prayer is the invitation. It's the vehicle to that connection. It's the the avenue to which God would begin to speak into our hearts and to our lives and it's not a formula and it's not a duty It's an invitation that requires from us an RSVP. God loves to be with his people. He loves to communicate. He loves for us to hear his heart. And how many of us know that when we are communing with God, it's not so important what we say, because he knows everything about our lives anyway. But how many of us would love to hear what God had to say about a certain situation or circumstance in our life? The other thing that Jesus practiced was simplicity. Do you remember the days of simplicity? (laughs) Life gets very complicated very quickly. Have you noticed that? Do you know, when I was little, we didn't have much. And I say this, and I say this respectfully to my parents, but what we had was far better than some other things over time I thought I needed, but actually weren't good for me. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a good reputation, we were traveling people, we didn't have the finer things of life, but actually what we did had was so special and so valuable to me that even now, I'm 57 years of age, I look back and I think, gosh, I wish I'd valued those things a little bit more than I did at the time. There was a time in my life when I wanted to escape my family and my family were a little bit rough around the edges and uh, I thought I was sophisticated. I know it's a puzzle, isn't it? But... (laughs) 
you know, I would try and avoid connecting my family with people that were in my other network of friends or connections. And, and you know, my mother just didn't pay attention to any of those social cues. She just to just barge in and say whatever she wanted to say. And she was a wonderful Irish mother who felt that she had the responsibility of correcting everybody on the planet. And so I would bring these people back and she would say, I think you need to, that's a terrible colour in your hair, son. She said to one of my friends, you need to go and get that done properly. That's dreadful. The guy had spent over 150 quid having his hair coloured, a variety of colours, and my mother said, that, that looks terrible on you. It looks terrible on you, son. Come upstairs, I've got a bit of dye, I'll do it for you while you're here. <laughs> she just had this wonderful way. And you know, the, the interesting thing, looking back, is people were never offended, or if they were, they were too frightened to say they were, because she probably could have said something else. But life was simple. Life was simple, it was uncomplicated. Do you ever think that, that sometimes this has become very complicated? It's just very complicated. And I wonder if we need God to detangle us from the complications or the sophistications that we think offer us life. I think to lead a simple life where certain things are not necessarily as valuable as they have become for us might actually be a very positive thing for our soul. And it invites us into the experience of Jesus carrying something special here on earth of God's presence. The other thing that Jesus did is he lived sacrificially. How many of us struggle with that? In a world where the Trinity for many of us is me, myself and I, it's very, very difficult to look beyond ourselves. You know, I, I remember coming to, to faith fairly late in life, but actually coming to church was, was quite an eye-opener. When I started leading worship, people would say things like this to me, and they were earnest. They said, well, I didn't get anything out of that. And, you know, I used to look at them wondering what the question was, and then it twigged, and I used to have a cheeky answer. Well, that's okay, because we weren't worshipping you. We were worshipping God, so it's probably good that you didn't get anything out of it, because maybe we're facing in the right direction. We've got to be very careful with our lives that we don't make everything about us. And we have these wonderful slogans on all the adverts, because I'm worth it. If, if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, the trinity of me, myself, and I will push aside Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you do know, don't you, that it's really good for you to live off-center. That if you are the center of your universe, you probably won't be very fulfilled in life. <laughs> but when you live off-center and you allow God to be the center of all things, you find that actually living off-center actually makes you at the center of the purposes of God. So solitude, silence, prayer, simplicity, and sacrificial living. I think they're all connected to the kind of life that Jesus lived as he carried the presence of God here on this earth. So what is the secret? Well, I think there are three things I want to suggest to you and then we'll go to some prayer. The first thing I'll say is this, that the easy yoke involves a life of training, not a life of trying. Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 27. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. 
but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, do not run like someone running aimlessly, and do not fight like a boxer beat in the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified from the prize. So if you want to live under the yoke that's gentle and light, you need to understand that trying won't produce that. Striving will never produce that. Actually, what we need is training. We need God through his word and by his spirit to give us the capacity to be in training on a daily basis to accommodate his purposes in our lives. I think it was Wesley who said, the training is the means I live by grace. He spoke of a means of grace. If we're going to experience the Easy Yoke Church, we need to arrange our lives around the person of Jesus. Reflecting in his character and his commitments, we need to enter into training to win an imperishable wreath. And no disciple is above their master. And every disciple, when fully trained, will be like his master. And we need training to become like our master. Trying is not enough. Training is essential. And you know, Jesus understood that fact. I believe we sometimes forget that he was trained by God through the course of his life. In Luke 2, verses 41 to 52, we pick up the story where Jesus is found in the temple and uh, he's preaching this most incredible revelation of God. And actually, at the end of it all, it didn't go on to an international ministry. He ended up back home with his family. And you can imagine the discussions around the, the kitchen table about what he thought he was and why he was doing what he was doing. Jesus was being trained by God in the ordinary and everyday of his life. After he received the baptism at the hands of his cousin, John the Baptist, Jesus went into solitude. He fasted for a month and a half. And afterwards, as his ministry proceeded, he was alone much in that time, often spending the entire night in solitude and prayer before serving the needs of his disciples and hearers of his gospel the following day. So the First thing I'd say to you is this is not a trying thing, it's a training thing. How many of us have longed to be trained to live in the fullness of God? You know you have a great friend and companion that will help you with that. I'm sure you imagine that I'm about to say is absolutely essential to this process. The Holy Spirit has been given to you so that we can be trained to embrace the fullness of Christ in our life. So to live with an easy yoke means that we are called to live as Christ lived. Second thing that produces an easy yoke is finding my worth and identity in who I am, not in what I am doing. It's very easy, and I think it's become very familiar in the church, a phrase that I've picked up over the years, that we are human beings, not human doings. But the truth is that actually, if we're honest, we all tend to be a little bit demonstrative about the doing and pay attention to activity far more than we do to the practice of abiding in the reality of who we've become in Christ. I had this little phrase as I was preparing for this, and I believe it's probably something worth jotting down. It says, we're living from love, not living for love. We need to live out of love, not living for love. Romans 8, verses 37 to 39, it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 3 verse 16, a very famous part of the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 4 verse 9, 11, 9 to 11 says, This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's clear to me that when I look at the way Jesus lived, that these practices that he did in private actually turned up in very public ways, but actually he also adopted a very clear understanding that he was the beloved son of God. We know that when Jesus was baptized, the voice of the Father comes over that moment and he says, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. And if we're working for love, we will find ourselves always, always not living under the ease of the yoke of God's presence in our lives. We'll find ourselves striving, not abiding in an already accomplished thing that God has done for us, which is that we are the beloved of God. So let me just go over those again. The first one is simply this, that you and I have to be trained to live under the yoke of God. We cannot attain to it by striving. The second thing is that we need to live out of love, not live in this world searching for love. And the third and final thing I want to share with you is this, that God wants us to experience this wonderful yoke of his presence But we must prioritize joy in the Lord if we are to be able to sustain that kind of ease in our lives. I find, I think I told you this before, but it's worth mentioning Um, again. I find that joy in my household over times and seasons has not been the most evident trait in our lives. And um, a few years ago, I was at a dinner party. Somebody asked me to make a New Year's resolution. And... In that moment, I was trying to be clever. I said to this person, I resolve not to make any New Year's resolutions. And the Holy Spirit whispered to me, well, I'd like you to. So I imagined what that would be. Would I pray more? Would I read my Bible more? And this is what God said to me. I'd I'd like you to resolve to be happy. Now, my first response was, and forgive me, RT, forgive me, Louise. I'm not American. I don't know how to be happy. I'm Irish, we're born miserable, we live miserable, and we die miserable. How am I ever going to be happy? And God gave me three things to do. (laughs) He said, I want you (laughs) to think happy thoughts. Now, if the first invitation was problematic, this was even worse. Because how do you think happy thoughts? And I imagined how I would be kind of smiling on the outside and vacant on the inside, what, what would that look like? And then I was reminded of this scripture. Whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is excellent, these things think upon. You know, much of my thinking was not about the joy of the reality of the salvation work of Christ in my life. Could you honestly testify that if we were to see all of your thoughts, that you were living in the fullness of that joy? And yet the Bible teaches us that so as we think we live... And so I was questioning all that time, God, why, why is my life so difficult? And God was trying to help me, you know, 
that I needed to make joy a priority in my life. And to do that, I needed to think correctly about some things. I needed my mind renewing. And I wasn't sitting around thinking happy thoughts. And, and I needed to think of joyous truths. What was noble, what was praiseworthy. The second thing he said to me is, hang out with happy people. Now, this was getting more difficult and complex as the journey went on. So the invitation to joy and happiness was a stumbling block for me. The thinking of happy thoughts, I had no idea where to begin with that. And then to hang out with happy people. And I was trying, this lady was talking to me, I was trying to think of anybody I knew that was happy. And I arrived at this conclusion. There was two elderly ladies in the church called Sister Madge and Sister Pat. And they were an unusual breed of people. They were happy intercessors. Have you ever met a happy intercessor? You know, sometimes when people are intercessors, they're a little miserable, aren't they, really? It can be a little bit uptight, a little bit intense. But actually, Madge and, and Sister Pat, they just used to laugh a lot in the presence of God. And I was trying to work out in my head as I'm working this through how I could spend time with them and it not look really weird. You know, how would I, would I take them out for a cup of tea? Would we do, what would we do? So think happy thoughts, hang out with happy people. And um, I don't know if you have any of those in your life, but I suggest you spend a little more time with them than some others. That's all I'm saying. They can have a huge effect on your soul. And the final thing God said to me was this, and do things that make you happy. Now, I struggled with the first two. The third one was absolutely painful. Because, you know, I'm a minister. So isn't my whole existence about making other people happy? Isn't that why I got married? And, you know, I realized that I had some problems. And you realize now that I have some problems. <laughs> my mind was full of thoughts that did not bring me to the fullness of God. I spent all my time with people who had problems and wondered why I felt a little bit low. And so we had to find very creative ways of meeting with Sister Madge and Sister Pat that didn't look strange. And actually more problematic than any of those was that I had somehow reduced my life to a place where I thought I only existed for the benefit of other people's happiness. Now that may sound like a noble thing, but it's a stupid thing. Because if I'm not living in fullness, how can I give fullness away? If I don't have a soul that's conditioned by the goodness of God, whatever I say and however I minister to other people, they're not going to catch my words. They're going to catch my countenance. And it's important to us to understand that God is in the business of giving you the most exceptional joy. It's not circumstantial. It's not based on the circumstances of your life. It's a stronghold of joy that determines the outcome and your responses to the adversities that you actually experience. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, when you look at Jesus' life, you see that these three dynamics are very evident in the way that he lived. Jesus knew exactly who he was in regard to the Father's love and affection. He did not have, like you or I, an identity crisis. The second thing that we recognize with Jesus is that he did not work for love, he actually worked from love. And we're invited to live with that kind of posture. And thirdly, it seems to me that Jesus must have had the most exceptional infectious joy about the way he lived his life 
And I recognize that because I find that children tend not to gravitate to people who are miserable. And if you had any doubts about your countenance, there lies the secret of what it truly is like. Children gravitate to people that are full of fun and full of joy and full of life. And the disciples had to try and keep the children away from Jesus. Jesus.